We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Ousted Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan gives government six-day ultimatum to announce new elections. Uh, He has warned the government to call a new election within six days, or he will stage a rally and march on the capital, Islamabad, with millions of his supporters. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a podcast and host of The Left is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always good to be here. So Imran Khan issued the ultimatum today after he joined the rally of thousands of demonstrators in Islamabad with plans to overtake part of Islamabad until the government gives in to his demand for new polls. What's going on here and how much of a threat is Khan to the sitting government? Um, I I think he presents um, a fairly significant threat because, you know, he was elected uh, sort of in a situation like this where you have a two-party duopoly and people kind of get sick of both parties. And, you know, as we've kind of seen here, you can't really go backwards on that. So um, I think he is a threat to the established order there. And I think he has quite a bit of popular support around him. I mean, he obviously had thousands out in the Capitol. Um, as of today, he, I imagine he will be back with more. I don't doubt that at all. Um, I think his, you know, his largest sin here was pushing these two parties out of power. And then, you know, we have an unstable relationship with Pakistan and people taking on, say, military generals or Pakistani intelligence, the ISI. Uh, I don't think ever gets looked at favorably by the U.S., even if we know, say, the ISI often works with the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Um, I think the popular support, like, like I said, once you have a broken system like that, it doesn't go backwards, right? You can't go back to the two parties you always had. It's just like here. Uh, we had a Donald Trump, and I don't think anything will ever be normal again. It's obviously not normal now, no matter how much people pretend. So I think Khan definitely represents that kind of threat to the establishment. The other thing I think is, and that is uh, here, Uh, In this particular instance, the people of Pakistan, people around the world know he revealed um, the letter that he had. They know that the United States empire had a hand in this in this. So the stain of uh, corruption by the U.S. is going to be internally there and externally throughout the world. People are looking at it and there's no way to pretend that the U.S. wasn't involved. And I think that's a, a factor here that won't allow the Pakistani government just to continue, even if they are able to hold on to power and et cetera, which they may be, but just to continue as though things are normal, too. What do you think about that element? I think that's the case everywhere, isn't it? I mean, anytime we stick our nose in something, whether the people of a nation like their leader or not, what do they normally say? Well, you know, you get out of here. We don't want it. Look at Guaido in Venezuela or the MEK in Iran. You know, every time we pick somebody, they're a real loser. And people tend to, you know, they tend to not want to be involved because they understand what when we help select a leader, that means total subservience to our agenda. And that's why we selected them. So having U.S. fingerprints on anything, I don't think is um, it doesn't have as much prestige as it did, say, you know, post-war, early Cold War era where all the U.S. interfering was seen as a, a positive. I think after 70 years of empire, that's not really looked that way anymore. And any time. Uh, U.S. fingerprints are on something, people know that this is probably not in their best interest. As you look at particularly um, 
if you if you look at uh, at Pakistan and the kind of historic the longer term historic perspective and the United States involvement not only in their government but in overthrowing governments um you know Khan uh the the, the, Pac- the people of Pakistan should, should should have seen this should see this coming should be wary of it and and that I would think would play a greater factor in the Pakistanis' support for him. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's, like I said, it's the resisting the U.S., right? I mean, um, when was Iran? Benazir Bhutto, I think, is who I was trying to think of. I, <laughs> the United States was involved in her overthrow, I think. Yeah, and I mean, you know, every time we see something like right before uh, the killing of Soleimani, you know, we saw their protests in Iran against the government, and then what unified them more than the U.S. being involved in killing somebody they loved or and trying to change the government they were under. Um, nobody wants the U.S. there, and I think that ends up putting support, you know, behind people like Khan, Maduro, whoever. You know, uh, it's just opposition to the imperialism from the U.S. Because, like I said, you know what's ever coming down the pipe of the U.S. is going to be worse. And the people of Pakistan know that we have this precarious relationship and always have. You know, they've been an unreliable partner in Afghanistan as far as the intelligence services go and military and Khan was kind of picking fights with them. And those are the people who, have, you know, slightly, they've attributed to making people's lives more miserable in Afghanistan, in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, but in their own country, um, the military and security services have definitely let a lot go on. We've, the U S has overlooked a lot of, you know, issues with them in order to let them do so. And I think people kind of see, you know, the system that, made con is not a good system anyway he exists for a reason you know and i'll say this but regarding maduro you know having experience in venezuela i can say this the chavista movement chavismo whatever you want to call it movement chavez movement was strong and he was you know chavez's deputy he was the second in charge and the argument that somehow the people didn't like him or didn't want him never really worked. They're they're Chavistas to, you know, to their soul. <laughs> and when you go there, they they shake their fist. I mean, you go to the littlest town and they'll shake their fist and say, we are the sons and daughters of Chavez and we will fight for our, <laughs> you know, they really mean business there. Plus added, added to that, Garland, when you look at what what the Venezuelan government has been able to do, what they've been able to deliver versus what has been promised by a number of Pakistani governments. Yeah. There's a huge difference there yeah. as well. So um, uh, here's an interesting story uh, in antiwar.com. Russia-Ukraine war. George Bush's admission of his crimes in Iraq was no gaffe. The former president's confusion over the invasions of Iraq and Ukraine should lead to Western soul-searching, not mirth. Well, we certainly know. I- I'll put it like this. It's not that it'll lead to soul-searching. What he said was a perfect representation of we— can do anything we want, and it's fine, and no one else can. And he can even make the mistake and say, oops, I'm in Iraq, and it can be obvious. But from the perspective of NATO, from the the perspective of the West and the U.S. empire, because they have the power, they can do whatever they want, and the weak suffer what they must, as they say. Your thoughts? Yeah, that was it. I mean, Putin's not allowed to be doing what we would do. Uh, That's why everyone laughed in that room when he made that gaffe, you know, quote-unquote gaffe. Um, so everybody laughed in the room because they, they know it's true that, well, I don't think it's true anymore, but they, they think it's true that we can just go around, you know, sort of dictating terms for everybody. And, uh, I think 
man, I, you know, they're not willing to look at any economic or social issues that have led us to the point where people will, like, say, vote for a Donald Trump or drop out of voting altogether. They're definitely not going to look at the imperial issue that has defined the last two decades, which seems insane because it's been 20 years. You have to eventually reflect on this. Otherwise, you'll end up schizophrenic like England, which maybe we will. Um, but I think that, yeah, there's an implicit failure because these people are still telling you lies about Syria and about Russia and about Ukraine. Uh, the same people in the same media are doing the same things and the same people who were working in cabinets that persecuted these wars are still in power. You know, they cycle in and out with different administrations, but all these people are still there. You know, even Donald Trump had to pull John Bolton up from the sewer. So the names are all the same. They've all stayed in power. No one's moved. No one's been held accountable. That's for sure. And I think that there's definitely a move to avoid that. And really now, thanks to Trump, this whole move to normalize Bush has really helped him out. Bush observed that a lack of checks and balances in Russia had allowed, quote, one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, Ukraine. Iraq, too. Anyway, I'm 75. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No one in mainstream media has really picked up that ball and 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 spoken to how, how deep that really is. I mean, once it once again, mainstream Western media does not do its job. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, it's an admission. I mean, right? It's right there. It's an right. admission. It's the same as Condoleezza Rice being interviewed and saying, well, you can't just make up accusations of chemical weapons and invade a country, you know? These are, you can't, it's hard to believe that they even say it, but yeah, it's exactly the same. I would say it's actually not the same because Iraq is thousands of miles away from me and I don't think it's a danger to me at any time. Whereas a NATO, you know, base in Ukraine would probably be something that Russians would look more, you know, uh, at unfavorably on. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Rightfully so. You know, I mean, we've been through a Cuban missile crisis. We know what these things look like. And, um, I think that, you know, Russia sees a threat, but we won't acknowledge that there was just nothing there. We know this was a crime. We we talk about how the Iraq war was a crime. We talk about how it was all, you know, on false pretenses, but nothing has happened. I mean, Obama himself said, well, let's move forward, not look back. And that was supposed to, I guess that was our introspection on this, but that's crazy because, I mean, the national wealth has been dove into this war on terror and now, you know, Look what we have to show for it. Well, and, and again, this is a perfect example, too, because the United States basically said um, uh, Iraq, which is like 7,000 miles away or something, that Iraq, if armed with whatever, WMDs, is a threat to us. And we drew a red line that was 7,000 miles long from here to Iraq, right? And recently, the United States said that if China built a base in the Solomon's Islands, 7,391 miles from our shores, that would be a red line, and the U.S. would not rule out military action. Drawing a red line, 7,391 miles long. Yet, Ukraine is less than a millimeter 
from uh, from Russia, and the U.S. is building gigantic bases and uh, bio-research labs and all that other stuff, and Russia doesn't have a red line that's less than a millimeter wide. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's, it's wild what the U.S. has gotten away with. I mean, we've admitted to helping sink a Russian ship. We think we're thinking about sending special forces to guard the embassy. We've done multiple things that I'm not, you know, a legal expert here, but they sure look like acts of war since we're taking credit for them. And um, the U.S., I don't think it has the muscle to back that up. But like you said, Ukraine is right on their border. And here we are blatantly, on, you know, right on the Polish-Ukrainian border, funneling weapons over. We're very clearly a participant in this war. It's clearly a proxy war. This is not just some Ukrainian war of defense, as it's sort of portrayed in the media. This is an open proxy war, just like the Cold War would have been, you know, when we knew who was funding what side. And um, I think that it, it's ridiculous to think that Russia should just accept NATO, you know, encroaching on them like that to the final country on their border, essentially. And I think, frankly, it's ridiculous for NATO to exist, obviously, you know, and I think that that's a discussion nobody's going to have because the last big operation NATO did do was invading Iraq. And they had to, even then, a lot of the members didn't want to sign on. And I don't think a lot of them are going to sign on to fight China or fight Russia openly or anything like that. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.